What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. I am Jack's Raging Podcast. <laughs> My name is Jared, and uh, with me today is Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Yo, what up? And here in the flesh for the first time is Alec. Hello. Alec, what other podcasts have you been on for this one? You were on Network. Is that the only other one? I think, uh, oh, Star Wars with Austin. Oh, okay. That's right. When it first came out. We did The Last out. Jedi. Yeah. Cool. So Alec is here in person. He usually lives in Brooklyn. Well, he does live in Brooklyn. He's usually in Brooklyn. He's uh, visiting the LA office. So he wanted to do, he basically picked the movie. So he picked Fight Club. So right up the top, why did you pick Fight Club, Alec? It was like a very foundational movie for me as a teenager. And then I was kind of like, eh, what the fuck is this movie? And now I rewatch it. It's just really interesting to think about how it shaped my life. And now, as we'll talk about, there's things I like and don't like about it. But yeah, it's it's a great movie. I fucking love it. I've probably seen it more than any other movie besides maybe The Big Lebowski. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Cool. All right. So as we already said, today we're covering Fight Club, the 1999 film directed by David Fincher, starring Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. Uh, before we get first impressions, I want to let you guys know, if you want to leave us a voicemail with your thoughts, comments, jokes, 213-534-8807. Also want to let you guys know that next week we're going to be doing Starship Troopers. We also had a poll recently on one of our YouTube videos on what you want us to cover for the podcast, and the film that won is Mandy. Whoa. So, so we're going to be talking about Mandy uh, in November, so be on the lookout for that. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get some first impressions for Fight Club. I'm sure this is a movie that all of us have seen multiple times, so what is it like revisiting it, and what was it like the first time? Let's start with Ryan. I mean, what else is there to say? This is just damn fucking... This is a movie. A with movie. a capital M, it's a great movie. I, just like Alex said, this was a very. Fa- this came out at a time in my life when it's a very foundational movie for me. You know, on a like what it's about, the content, and then also just from a cinema level, like it's just this is David Fincher's masterpiece. You know, and it, and it kind of made me want to make movies, and I have uh, analyzed the fuck out of this movie. Um, so yeah, I don't have much more to say other than fuck yeah, Fight Club is the best. Can't wait to talk about it. All right. How about you, Austin? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to even talk about because it's such an iconic film. And I wonder, too, if there's something yeah. about it being such a dude movie and we're a bunch of dudes <laughs> talking about this that probably saw this in our teenage years. That Should we punch each other? I, we, we ought to. Um, well, that, that's for the patrons only. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I wonder if it's if there's like we've got blinders on a little bit because of that, right? Like I wonder if we revisited it now for the first time because every time I watch it now, it's hard for me to watch it without thinking about it through my presuppositional lenses that I love this movie. So I love the movie. I think it's fascinating. Like Alex said, there's some amazing things about it then there are some things that are intriguing that we could probably say are quote-unquote problematic that i'm sure we'll be able to get into <laughs> but i mean i just think it's a fucking brilliant film it's well acted it's curious i think it's even more interest this is one of those films where if you know the twist it doesn't really ruin it because it makes you more uh perceptive to other things that are going on and there are tiny 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 little hints um you don't know it and i think i've even heard in the director's commentary that they're like if you say you knew it the first time you saw this you're full of shit because they make it so obscure but now that you know the twist it makes it it doesn't ruin it for you like a lot of films do so i mean i think you know top to bottom it's an excellent film well made well acted super intriguing and yeah yeah, I, every time I watch it, it's good. I actually just watched it a couple weeks ago for the I Dig This Movie podcast that I do as well, too. So I've seen it twice in the last month, and I still think it's fucking great. 
Interesting. I know you already mentioned it, Alec, but what did you think this most recent viewing? So I've watched it twice in the last year, I think, because we did a video on it and I had to rewatch it. And when I watched it about a year ago or six months ago, it really made me, this was the first time I watched it post working for Wisecrack and thinking about movies in a way. And I was like, oh, there's so much shit I missed. It's so fucking good. Uh, and then in preparation, I reread the book. And then yesterday, you and I watched it together. And I'm not saying this is a diss or anything, but when I was watching, I was like, I got, I didn't really get much out of it. Boo. Well, but <laughs> there was, a, so, so I think the first half, I was like, oh, I'm still noticing new things. And then I think towards the end where he's trying to, find Tyler Durden and that's where I was sort of like oh god but but that's literally just because I had read the book last week and I'm watching it I literally know every single thing that's going to happen and there's not like it's not the big Lebowski there's not just jokes you can laugh at it every time but but that's that's not a a diss on the movie yeah especially for what we do it seems like a movie that is I mean it was our first episode of Earthling Cinema because this Mm -hmm. is a movie that is intelligent that is conducive to analysis, that has something to say, that is still very popular. So this is just a, a movie that it's we run into fuck. a lot. Fun it's as a, hell. It's a roller coaster. It's a movie that we talk about all the time. Even in our Beat the System video, we talked about it recently. So yeah, Alec and I watched it together. I love this movie, but man, this most recent viewing did nothing for me just because <laughs> I just feel like I've engaged with it. I think about it all the time. I've seen it so many times. I've just overdosed on it, basically. Yeah, although I will say to to Austin's point about the uh, twist at the end, knowing it, not ruining it, I was kind of talking about this to you. I think it's the marker of a good plot twist. And I think the other one is the season one of Westworld, where you know the twist and then it recontextualizes your second viewing in like really new and interesting ways. Uh, and we can talk about it, but the fact that that the narrator or Edward Norton is jealous of, of uh, Jared Leto's character, even though he really is... He's the one being affectionate towards him, but in his mind, like, what the fuck does that mean? I still don't know. Uh, But just to think about it in that new way, knowing that he is, in fact, Tyler Durden doing all the Tyler Durden things. Absolutely. All right, guys, let's blow through this recap so we can get into it. I'm sure everyone is pretty well aware of what this movie's about. (laughs) So our unnamed narrator hasn't slept for six months, so he starts attending various support groups for diseases he doesn't have that enable him to cry and thus sleep. But his newfound cure doesn't last long. When a fellow fraud named Marla Singer starts to attend, he can no longer cry and thus no longer sleep. After a confrontation, Marla and him decide to split up nights. On a business trip, the narrator meets Tyler Durden, and later, when he discovers his apartment on fire, he calls Tyler. They have drinks, chat about how consumerism has made the narrator soft, and then decide to fight in the parking lot. The night ends with the narrator moving in with Tyler in his house on Paper Street. Tyler and the narrator continue to fight for sport, eventually attracting other men and establishing Fight Club. As Fight Club starts to grow, Marla starts sleeping with Tyler. Eventually, Tyler starts directing the people of Fight Club to start fights with strangers and vandalize private property, and eventually commit acts of domestic terror, otherwise known as Project Mayhem. Other men are recruited through acts of debasement, and once they are inducted, they are stripped of their identity. Much to the narrator's dismay, Paper Street becomes a full-fledged Project Mayhem operation, but Tyler is nowhere to be found. The narrator flies around the country and finds out Tyler has been setting up fight clubs all around the country. Eventually, the narrator discovers that he is Tyler Durden, another personality of his that he becomes when he sleeps. He discovers that Project Mayhem has a large-scale terrorist operation in the works and seeks to explode the buildings housing the debt records. The narrator tries to alert the authorities, but all the low-level workers are in on the plan. 
The narrator confronts Tyler at one of the bomb sites. After getting the shit beat out of him, the narrator wakes up at the top of a building awaiting the destruction of the other buildings. The narrator shoots himself in the cheek, killing Tyler, but it's too late to stop the other bombs. Together with Marla, the narrator watches on as the buildings collapse. End of movie. So I don't know about you guys, but I think one of the most interesting things about this movie and the reason why it continues to be so relevant is that the response to this movie is as interesting or perhaps even more interesting than the movie itself. I don't know about you, but when I was in film school, this was the stereotypical film student movie poster that every film student had in their dorm. Oh, yeah. It was the stereotypical everyone's favorite movie. If you ask anybody what their favorite movie is, Fight Club is going to be one of them. And then you always hear stories about people setting up their own fight clubs. It seems like one a year you hear in the news that, oh, a fight club was set up in Jersey or something like that. And people are taking Tyler Durden's words to heart and actually finding meaning by beating the crap out of each other. I don't know how long these things last. You're not a member? Dude, what's rule one? Okay, yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, I'm curious if you guys, if you guys had that, a similar thing where... I mean, I guess, why do you think that it resonated so much and still does? Two words. David Fincher's movie making. Yeah, but David Fincher has made a lot of movies. No, but this movie, I'm telling you, is 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 just like candy. It's like intellectual and cinematic candy. It's okay, just like fine. every moment. So that's why that's why it's everyone's favorite, because it's fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, like n- nothing Okay, but the intellectual thing, I mean, certainly The Matrix Reloaded is intellectual, but we... Yeah, but this is different. This is just feels like a ride, and it's just a cool, different... I mean, I've never I'd never seen a movie with this vibe before with this just totally like nihilistic, but just saying like truth bombs that like, you know, felt real that like uh, and it was about very contemporary things. You know, I mean, yeah. Name a movie that ha- that has that kind of like like relevance to the culture that it's a part of. And then also is a, a really well made movie that doesn't feel like any other movies. You know, I, I think it's I can't name one. The, part of the reason that I think it resonates is it speaks really well to modern alienation, especially under consumer culture or capitalism uh, more generally. Um, and it give, it's weird because it gives uh, kind of the solution in the, the uh, sense of like Fight Club and Project Mayhem. And people kind of focus on that, but also at least especially in, in David Fincher, but I also think the book a little bit it kind of subverts that a little bit, but people don't really, they kind of ignore that part. But I think, you know, the way that people were feeling uh, was come out in 1999. Yeah. Um, In 1999 about consumer culture and ads for Calvin Klein and all of those things. Those are still the same images that we are constantly subjected to, uh, you know, on TV, on radio, nobody listens to radio, probably on YouTube channels. And, it's kind of articulating people's unspoken rage in a little way. Mm-hmm. So is that what you mean? You, you So when you see your average person with a Fight Club poster on it who probably hasn't thought about the movie beyond having seen it a handful of times, do you think that the reason why they love it so much is because, assuming it's a guy, they similarly feel emasculated by consumer capitalism? I don't think that your average person has thought that deeply about it. Yeah, that like is the... Bro but then, even like a subconscious level, I mean, it, 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 they, they feel that yeah, like like they understand where they're coming from. They might not on their everyday life like feel it, but they can see like yeah, I can see how someone in this environment and that we this culture we live in could be you know. Uh, well, you said you truth it. bombs, right? So what does that mean? Yeah, what are the truth bombs, Ryan? We want to know the truth. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
You know, the, the, every fucking He's line like, is just back, like, guys, it, I just it, fucking love it, David Fincher and Tyler Durden's no, awesome. That's fine. Jesus. Is that, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're one of those people that doesn't understand the movie. No, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I'm All I'm saying is that you can fucking think, you know, feel something is true without, it, you know, like, like. It's very aphorist. Like, There's like aphorisms in it. Like, right. Like, yeah. Uh, listen, maggots, you're not special. We are all the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. Like that's. It's just kind of like catchy. recognizing <laughs> your fucking like meaninglessness in your life. Even if you yourself don't feel like your life is meaningless, it's like, yeah, I get that. I can, you know, I can relate to that. The things you own end you up know. owning you. Yeah. I mean, there, there there are levels of awareness, though, that aren't necessarily reflective, right? Um, it, it, consciousness is affective as well. And the, the embodied human conscious experience isn't always necessarily quote-unquote aware, even if it's aware. And so I think that just because people don't recognize maybe the truth bombs in order to elicit them putting a poster on their wall doesn't mean they're not being affected by the truth bombs. And there's an aesthetic to the film that is extremely appealing. It's kind of dark. It's really slick. David Fincher is a very clean filmmaker, even though this film is kind of messy clean. Um, but the messiness is a clean messiness. And so I think just at <laughs> an emotional level, at the affective level, this film is appealing at that level. But also for dudes in particular, I'd be curious again why – this is why I mentioned at the outset that there is something about how this appeals to dudes. All the dudes that I know had a Fight Club poster on their wall or went for uh, as or for Halloween as Tyler Durden at some point in their life or something along those lines, right? Like I, it's just extremely common. So I wonder if there's an unconscious desire to project the very same thing that Tyler Durden is a very projection of in the film. It, he fucks the way that you wish you could fuck. He looks the way you wish you could look. And so people are projecting – to try to overcome this lack of a mythos, this lack of any depth or tradition or connection to something more because consumer capitalist culture is essentially banal and shallow. And so that doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't have to be at the level of truth in the way that we normally think about it. Right. I mean, I, I think basically there's an element of that, but also, I mean, the, a lot of people like it because there's a bunch of dudes being the shit out of each other in it. You know, you know I, I, mean, I used to be one of the people who would say, oh, man. Those people are morons. If you're not getting the critique of consumer capitalism, you're just a fucking tool. But <laughs> I do think that even if you just understand it on the base level of I feel restless in my life and could feel something from just getting into like physical tussles on a regular basis, I actually do find that to be a valid reading of the film. And 100%. if people get gratification out of that, I mean, that seems 100%. It's a cathartic movie. Exactly. It's a very cathartic That's movie. It. I think. Go ahead, go ahead, Austin. No, no, I'm just, I'm. That was my amen, my hallelujah to the pastor. I'm saying that's it. That's that, that cathartic yeah. emotional feel. That's precisely what I was, what I was getting. The catharsis at, is not that only from a, level. Yeah, catharsis not only physically but also culturally, as we'll go and dive into a little bit more. I find it interesting that doing some reading into uh, various academics and thinkers who have talked about this movie, there are some that see this as kind of just an opportunistic critique of consumerism that ultimately revels in the same culture it critiques. Uh, I think Henry Giroux famously said that all it does is fire up macho men pranksters. And some <laughs> see it as a valid critique of such masculinity, and some people say that it actually does not succeed in critiquing the what Tyler Durden represents. And I think I actually fall into that camp, but we'll, we'll get into that a little that bit That you later. believe it doesn't successfully critique Tyler Durden? Or yes. What? And you think it should critique? Well, I think that your reading of the film, which you can flesh out in a little bit is that well or i guess we could just talk about it now. right so, now i'll flush yeah, so, the fuck out of it all right so 
throughout the movie, we see how the narrator has been emasculated through consumer culture. So this is done in a number of ways. We have the testicular cancer group that's called Remaining Men Together. Basically, they've all lost their balls. The dude in the center who's talking about his life experience like it's an AA meeting has literally been cuckolded by his wife. Then there's Bob who has bitch tits. And he was a, a bodybuilder, so I, he went from being this image of masculinity to a guy with literal boobs. I think the guy's not technically cuckolded. I think his wife leaves him and then starts a family with another. But the idea is his wife is having ch- children with his new, uh, with her new husband, and so like it's that. Oh, because my because you know I don't have testicles, I can't impregnate my wife who left me. But yeah, it's the. Go ahead. Okay, so then. We see how consumer culture reduces people to a collection of commodities and brand names and how our lives are lacking meaningful work and how we become consumers basically instead of producers. And this culture makes men homogenous or, as the narrator says, a copy of a copy of a copy when he's standing at his at the copier and he sees all these other men in white shirts with Starbucks cups and they all look the same. Uh, you know, we see this with him saying, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? And then his apartment gets blazed and then he moves into Paper Street, which is the exact opposite of his apartment. And then Project Mayhem starts and Fight Club starts. And basically your argument, I think a very valid way to read the film is that the same thing that happens to Tyler, the narrator under consumer capitalism, the homogeneity, the fascism, the all that stuff happens again in Project Mayhem. Yeah. So the idea is you have a testicular cancer group of men who don't feel like men because, you know, they don't have testicles anymore. Their wife has left them, et cetera. There's earlier on even talk of I think Tyler Durden says we were a generation raised by women. I'm wondering if we need another woman. So just the general idea of being too feminine, being emasculated. Uh, But emasculation literally means I think it's getting your dick cut off or your balls. It's one of the two. Uh, But by the end, what happens is Tyler Durden starts threatening to castrate uh, the police chief. Okay, fine, whatever. But by the end, he's threatening to castrate even himself, Edward Norton, the narrator, uh, when he tries to snitch on Tyler Durden and they say, you know, we got to get his balls. Uh, but even the idea that we all be- become the same under uh, under capitalism early on, that we uh, craft our identities through Gucci ads and things like that, later on appears in the movie where He's saying, first of all, calling everyone maggots. Uh, people start shaving their heads. People literally don't have names uh, until in death you have your name. His name is Robert Paulson. R.I.P. Yeah. So it's not just that, oh, like I think Tyler Durden's kind of a fascist. But the in, in the Fincher movie and I think also the book, the language of the denigration of capitalism is reinscribed under the sort of reign of Tyler Durden. Yeah. So another example is that. At the beginning, the narrator has a job that uses a math formula to basically denote the worth of a human being, literally dehumanizing people. And then we see later in Project Mayhem that they are being dehumanized again by calling them scum, snowflakes, debasing them. There's So I want to read a, a quote from an academic named Sally Robinson, and, and this actually rang very true to me. She said, despite the narrator's 11th hour renunciation of Tyler Durden and the organized violence he engineers, the film never the film never wavers from its worship of Durden or its pleasures in the spectacle of violence it proffers as a cure for what ails modern man. Edward Norton never comes closer to the power emanating from bad Brad Pitt, and even though the narrator ultimately exercises Tyler, the film nevertheless ends with an aestheticized spectacle of destruction that pays tribute 
to that alter ego. Boo. I mean, she's projecting so much on to <laughs> the. I mean, he literally kills her, him at the but end. But people and worship it, Tyler Dirt. Like, yeah, that's but not the so point. What? When, but when someone has Fight Club poster on their on their wall, they're not saying that. Oh, uh, you know, they're not saying that. Yes, consumer ca- capitalism sucks, but an overcorrection also sucks. I don't think they're saying that. I think when they have that poster on their wall, they're saying, I am frustrated with our consumer capitalist right, society. But, 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 but I'm talking about the context of the scene. She's, she, it seems like she's saying that the movie never totally, like like even at the end, is still fetishizing Tyler Durden. And well, I would say that at the end, I mean, it, it does it the whole movie. It's kind of like Wolf of Wall Street. Fetishizes the whole time, but then at the very end, it, it, yeah. it does a... It does a 180, and it's like, oh, yeah. You know. But it's well, two different. things I would say. There's something very different, though. They're and, different and, movies. And, Maybe it doesn't, the metaphor doesn't hold up. Keep going. <laughs> no, but like men aren't dressing up like Jordan Belfort for Halloween. You know, right. there's tons and, of people and, trying and, to be and, and Wall Street guys who can't. dudes have That's a Wolf of Wall Street poster on their wall. And it's not because they fetishize the lifestyle so much. Like, yeah, some maybe Wall Street dudes are like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's cool. But there's something very different about what this film does compared to what Wolf of Wall Street does. And it might just right, be but, at but, that affective level. But people still but, want to be Brad Pitt. Like, I wanted my body when I was working out. To look like Brad Pitt's in the film, I wanted to fuck like he fucked and looked like he fucked. Yeah. So I understand. But, I mean, but it, 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 maybe I'm misunderstanding. Doesn't because, have that effect. But, okay, but 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 to me, that's besides the point. It's like uh, my understanding is that we're talking about the, the, this lady is reviewing the culture that emanated from the movie, whereas like that the movie has no well, I think uh, the, control over that. What happened after the movie no, came no, no, out? No, but I think the argument is, and, and um, so. At the end, yeah, he shoots himself in the cheek, but what that means... Kills him. Kills him, but, you know, it's because, like, he doesn't like the terrorism and the, the buildings exploding, Cross the line. whatever. Uh, he crosses the line, dude. Uh, <laughs> but the... So, yes, there's that. But really, and I never realized this until I watched it a year ago, but, like, that renunciation of him by killing him means a lot more. Uh, even, like, I think people ignore, like, the role of Marla in the film and the way that more or less the story is that he uh, hated Marla Singer because she was a projection of himself, like, cheating at these things and, like, didn't give a shit about life and wanted to fuck her, wanted to be her, and creates this alter ego to be with her. And at the end, it ends with her holding her hand. It's very, like, subtle. And I think what the author's saying is, like, it's subtle, it's short. Sure, you can think about it all day, but most people walk away being like, damn, I want that red leather jacket. I want to look cool as shit. I'm going to, like, renounce, you know, uh, all of my earthly possessions and be like Tyler Durden, which is ironic because the movie is saying you like we lost after like Tyler, Tyler Durden in the same way that we <laughs> lost after like yeah. the models and the Gucci ads. Uh, but clearly the book's not saying that, but I think the author's just saying on a narrative level, it could have done more to sort of break apart. And the book does a little bit. Well, see, I would all, say that that, that, that was that, that's the part of the genius of the movie and that it's not up to David Fincher, you know, to hold people's hand to uh, be like, "Oh yeah, make sure that you know that this guy sucks." It's like that that's up to you the viewer and it's such a it's Well, a, kind of. I mean, we spent the entire movie an hour of it hearing quote unquote Tyler Durden's truth bombs. And then <laughs> at the end when all of a sudden Edward Norton renounces him, but why? All he says is he doesn't want the He's, violence. We've heard an hour of all this waxing poetic about how this culture is hurting people, is dehumanizing people. And then we have Edward Norton at the end who just does an about face. But there's no actual – we don't see how his motivation has changed. He just says he doesn't like it. And plus, Brad Pitt 
scintillates in this movie. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but a good example that I've actually seen criticized, I've seen this criticism a bunch of places, but when Tyler Durden and the narrator get on a subway and they see, I think it's actually a Calvin Klein ad, and there's this guy. It's a Gucci ad, but they say Calvin Klein, I think, or vice versa. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) There's a guy with a totally ripped body, and then he says, like, is that what men are supposed to look like? I hate that part because it's the worst part of the movie because it's exactly what Brad Pitt looks like. And it makes <laughs> it makes the, the criticism totally not work. And he did I, – I read this a long, long time ago. But he did a 1,000 sit-ups a day to, like, get the body for that thing. And, like, he didn't – like, you know, Ed, Edward Norton, I mean, he's probably pretty muscular in it. Uh, but, like – he didn't have that fucking mountain of abs going on. That's that's part of the point of the, the dynamic of the character, I think. Well, yeah, like, that he wants to be like him, wants to fuck yeah, like him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, like basically, I would say that that what I get out of Edward Norton's arc is that he has to go to he has to he, you know he's nihilistic about you know society, but he has to go all the way to the logical extreme of destroying it to realize. Oh wait, I don't need. That's not how it should be. You know, we, we should try to fit, you know. So, so the, the, and I'll stop talking about the book because it's not a book podcast. But the one line that I do like in the, at the very last page or two of the book that I think helps contextualize that last moment a lot better is he's in a psychiatric ward and says, we're not beautiful, unique snowflakes, but we're not crap or tra- trash either. We just are. And it kind of really plays off of the film and the books like Buddhist themes of it's, Again, it's neither of these extremes. We just are. We should sort of exist in the world in a way that's not this or that. Um, and that, I think, gives a lot of context. I think having uh, – first of all, the ending of this movie is fucking beautiful, and I love the way the pixies are used, so I don't want to ruin that. But at the same time, I could see the benefits of like just throwing in that 30-second, 60-second scene uh, at the end. Because in the book, it's like two pages. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction is that in the book, he does say – Consumer cop- consumer capitalism, bad. The overcorrection into a fascistic father figure, also bad. Mm-hmm. In this, we don't get that. I think it's kind of implied. I mean, I just think that— You have to do a lot of digging. And it's fine. You have You're to do right. a lot it's of there. digging. It is there. But I just think that the people with the Fight Club posters, the seemingly millions of people with Fight Club movie posters, are saying that— I get catharsis from identifying with Tyler Durden. There's one quick... I don't think the nuance really communicates at all. Sure, I mean, did the people with Leo posters from Titanic care about the the awful tragedy that day? You know, no, it's just a movie to a lot of people, you know? I I don't think you can give people... Fight Club has become so much more to... Like, Fight Club has had, like, a huge political influence. Sure. Even the fact, I didn't realize this until I was reading about it, but the You Are Not a Unique Beautiful Snowflake, that was... Like the coining of the term that led to people in political context calling everyone else a snowflake. Mm. So, like, you can't just be like, oh, it's just a movie. Like, people aren't walking around saying, like, I love you, Rose, like, as a political argument to people uh, or, you know, never let go or whatever. Like, that doesn't happen. But I I really mean this movie is a lens through which people construct world and political views. And we just said it was foundational for our lives. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean compl- almost entirely on a cinema level. Like like I think that like, you know, yeah, I'm no, a, no I want to be a filmmaker. That. Right. And 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 so but but I would say that most people that have their fight club posters aren't really, you know, I think we're really just splitting yeah. hairs here, but 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 basically I think most people just think it's a cool fucking movie on a cinema level. And really the the, the, the there's less of the nihilist that in their basement with Fight Club going, God, I fucking worship Tyler Durden. There might, there's probably a lot of those on the internet that I'm maybe not as well aware of as you, but they're there. But <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that that I don't I don't know. 
Keep it's, going. it's hard to find somebody who doesn't identify with Tyler saying we were all born and raised to be movie stars and blah, 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 but we won't. And we're really angry about it. I mean, and do you think that everybody identifies with that? And so I do think it's not just the cinematics. It is the subject of what Tyler Durden represents. Yeah, sixteen-year-old Alec was like, "Fuck yeah!" I'm Mixed with the cinematics, star. but yeah, okay. I mean, all right. Let's go to the next point. There are some small things that I mentioned that I noticed this time that I thought were uh, pretty clever. So more talking about the emasculation or how consumer capitalism leads to emasculation or feminization. I love how when Fight Club first starts attracting a large community, there's close-ups of taking off their rings, their belts, uh, their clothes, and they're all like these material, these like very expensive things, these material possessions that they're discarding before mm-hmm. they get into Fight Club and start. Yeah, because they shed themselves of the inauthentic culture and just, you know, it's like integrity, man. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking it's of integrity, earthy, here's my and, pussy stick. Yeah, and of the earth. Um, <laughs> So there's actually an article that I read that I felt was pretty interesting and was extremely prophetic considering where we are as a culture today. And this article is written in 2005. It's called Fight Club Globalization and Professionals in Crisis. So um, just listen to this. It says, Fight Club is a story about the delusions of professionals in the, quote, new world order. It's an extraordinary representation of the repressed rage of middle America, which has intensified since the loss of the Vietnam War. Now, you can see how if this article is written today, there'd probably be a different event that they're contextualizing this with. This social anxiety has been fueled by a variety of social movements, including feminism and the civil rights movement, but it also involves confusion about post-Fordism and post-Keynesian economics, as well as frustration over the collapse of the American dream. So this is why I think, to Alex's point, that it's especially relevant to hear that a word like snowflake that has been used you know, in the culture war, which is largely about globalization, has been lifted from Fight Club. Wait, is the culture war about globalization? I think that's an element of it. Okay. Would you disagree? Uh, I, I just think about them differently, but maybe they're embedded in, like, you know, uh, together in other people's minds. But, um, yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, like, earlier you just brought up globalization. I was like, I don't really think the movie's about globalization. And I think, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just... We've been thinking about, especially in our in our, we're talking about modern times from Charlie Chaplin, uh, and there's just like a long history of movies that aren't Fight Club because nothing is Fight Club except when things start to copy it. Uh, but you know, just disillusionment with modern life. So, modern life is about the denigrating, uh, dehumanizing aspect of factory work. Now, Fight Club is essentially that kind of idea, but in office work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. I think when you have a collapse of metaphysics, when you have a collapse of a mythos or a tradition or a lineage or a history or a depth beyond just, you know, consumption and mimetic reproduction of who you are and what you are and your role in this machine, I think when when those things are, are missing, when there is no depth, then you do find this experience of alienation that this film explores. And... I had a friend say this. She was talking about – I guess she wrote an essay when she was doing her master's degree or something. I can't remember. We were having cocktails and she was talking about how this film sort of explores – and I like that this article talked about like post-Vietnam or whatever even though I'm not sure that it's as specific as that. But it it doesn't have to be. It's it's that in the late 90s, you have this generation of 
of men in particular that is being explored uh, in, let, let's say, America, that they didn't really have any sort of threat that there would be a war. This is pre-9-11, remember. So we didn't really have an imminent foe. Like, yeah, there were these little things periodically that would scare us, you know, but there wasn't like an immediate foe that we were an other that we could galvanize ourselves around in in opposition to. It was pre-Iraq War, pre-9-11. Yeah, like he says, we're the middle children of history. We have no great war. Our great depression is our lives. Right. And, And so when you don't have, as a man, like I've come out of a military family. My grandpa was in the military. My dad was not. This film, Chuck, how do you say his name? Polanek? Yeah. Is my dad's age. Maybe a little bit younger, but right around my dad's age. He's a young boomer, early Gen X age, right? Like in the, we'll say the like late 40s now to the 60s, or we'll say like early 50s to the 60s now. Some early 60s. They didn't, maybe they thought they were going to have to go to war too, like when they were younger. I mean, maybe at the tail end of Vietnam. But there hasn't been anything like that where they've they've had this connection to they're going to serve their country kind of mythos. Now, whether or not that mythos is essentially fascistic, and I don't mean that it's fascist, but that it operates according to um, the obsessive logic that we've talked about on this podcast before in psychoanalysis, where it ignores the truth of the actual anxiety of the situation in order to cover over it, and it creates a truth, a quote-unquote truth on top of it to manage it or control it. That's a fascistic logic. That's something that's being operated here as a response to the anxieties of capitalism, whereas the hysteric is probably more truthful, even though it's uh, a lie in its effects. You know, the hysteric person isn't maybe operating truthfully. At least they're being faithful, let's say, to the uh, authenticity of the anxiety of the moment, right? But so the fascistic logic is covering over the sort of anxiety that's there, but it doesn't really offer anything other than what? You can go to war and you can be a man and you can connect to country. Well, what happens when even that's taken away? Then you have to kind of manufacture some other sort of alternative narrative. Then that's the the middle path that you guys are talking about. It's the fascistic father versus the kind of banality of uh, mimetic imitation or whatever. And I think that, that there's something really interesting about this film exploring that because uh, I think that that and, – and that's probably why it resonates so much with people. But it's definitely not, I don't think – explicitly talking about globalization and the way that we think about it now. And I think that's because we live in a post 9-11 world, post GFC, global financial collapse, that has totally rearranged those terms. So now when we're talking about those terms, I think we're, and this is actually what's interesting about the film, is now we're changing the meaning of the film to fit into these post 9-11, post GFC crises. Uh, or contexts, I mean. And I think that the film is able to kind of speak to that while also kind of maintaining its originality in the late 90s. But that's two different points, kind of. One connection I I guess I could make with globalization is that uh, so there's kind of a transition point economically. Uh, You have NAFTA where uh, American manufacturing starts becoming on the decline. The service industry expands. Uh, and there was actually an article I, I uh, read a long time ago about like the McDonaldization of labor and the McDonaldization of our bodies. In that, uh, your McDonald's is just a metaphor, but when you're working at McDonald's, you have to put on a smile, pretend you like these people, and all this stuff. So at the very core, it's like the commodification of our bodies uh, in, in that sense. And what Fight Club is. Really, if you think about like the body aspect of the fight club, it's our bodies have been commodified in the service sector. Now let's destroy those bodies, which have become instrumentalized uh, to, uh, you know, to 
to harm us. So um, I think you could view that in that context of that specific shift from decline of manufacturing, rise of service industry, and that kind of like alienation is really specific to that moment. Now, obviously, you still hear about manufacturing jobs and things like that now, uh, but it's definitely, you know, economically, historically a transition point. Right. I think that's ultimately what I was alluding to is that there is a a restless lower class. I mean, you even see that a lot of the ways that Project Mayhem is able to succeed is because all of the lower level people in pretty much every industry in the world are in on it, whether it's the security guys at the buildings or the lower level cops or something like that. All All of these are the frustrated workers who are frustrated for a number of economic reasons to which globalization may or may not. Well, and it's because, again, they don't have a mythos that they can attach to. They have nothing else. So they have to manufacture something. I mean, I would would argue that mythos is always manufactured anyway, but the point is is that the previous mythos, the one that is purely masculine, that is about violence and aggression, that this film is so clearly articulating, that that's gone. And so you have to kind of like... There's this primal need for men to fuck and fight, you know, like that sort of thing. Uh, whether that's true or not is is a different issue, but it seems at least that that's what this film is trying to explore. And in the absence of that kind of mythos, what one are you going to fabricate or what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the banality or the the profanity, let's say, of existence? I have a question for you, Austin. Yeah. I don't know how up on Carl Jung you are, but I was just watching a Chuck Palahniuk interview uh, where he talks, I guess in Jung, there's the primary father figure, uh, but then there's a secondary father figure, and that's what Tyler Durden is essentially, well, in, in fictionally, but also in real life, people often find secondary fa- father figures in mentors, stuff like that. Uh, and it kind of left me confused because it's Chuck Palahniuk, uh, you know, I, I don't think that he would necessarily agree with my take a, at all in saying like, yeah, like secondary father figures are good. They're essential. Like you learn a craft, for instance, and you, you need that person in your life. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, you, you're familiar with that, that part of Carl Jung. I'm not. I mean, I know that he talks about the father complex, um, but I'm not sure about the idea of the of the secondary father thing. I mean, but it, the, the, the idea of the father complex is kind of comes straight out of Freud. I think it just is taken in a little bit of a different way. It's that both males and females could have that father complex, um, whereas Freud seems okay. to make it exclusively about the male. But I, I don't know the idea of the of the secondary one. No. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of disparate kind of symbols things. What do you guys think about the penguin in his, whatever, his happy place or whatever, the penguin that just goes, slide. I would say that's my least favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> really? Why? Because to me, it's kind of a weird non sequitur. Mm-hmm. It really is too weird. Like, everything else is weird, but not just out of nowhere. I think it, it was actually the, the one thing I picked up on this movie was I think there's sort of, I'll just call it the like woo-woo bullshit culture that I, I dislike uh, that is pr- uh, prevalent in places like, oh, I don't know, L.A. Um, <laughs> and, not New York, though. <laughs> no, it's way more popular here. It's there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not yeah. whatever. But like everyone here is on some juice cleanse and whatever. Uh, I know you're not because you're a good man. Um, <laughs> I'll make fun of my juice <laughs> As he drinks a Coca-Cola. Uh yeah, I mean, it's not that I thought this was new, but he, I, he's he's making fun of that stuff, right? Like uh, in the 90s, the sort of uh, spiritualism and, and Buddhism comes into 
the I don't know if it's the first time it comes into the sort of American consciousness. Uh, even there's like an allusion to uh, uh, like sustainable organic wood used in his IKEA furniture. And I don't know, I guess I had just forgotten that this wasn't five years old. This is like 20 years old. Uh, but I think, yeah, that that is that scene is ripped from the book. I think Chuck Palnick is kind of making fun of the kind of woo-woo shit he was saying in the day about, you know, find your spirit animal, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, he's making fun of, like, yuppies that just have a lot of money to burn. You know, they work all day, and then they're just like, how am I going to live a quote-unquote good life? Yeah, I'm gonna buy it's, I, I, I agree stuff. with you, but I think what the Penguin says is relevant to his life because I, I think that later on in the movie, Tyler Durden makes a statement. He says, what is important is the ability to make that which does not matter truly slide. And I think that that's, oh. that's what the penguin represents. And I think that right. later on in the movie, we see in a very quick shot that he goes back to his happy place, but Marla's there instead of the penguin. And she says slide. <laughs> and she says slide. But I think that Marla is the embodiment of making things that which do not matter truly slide. I mean, one of the things about Marla that I'd forgotten about that I remembered upon this viewing is that she effortlessly glides through traffic like she just doesn't care. She. It's funny that, and I did not realize this until recently, she's almost the embodiment of like what Tyler Durden, a.k.a. what the narrator wants to be. She walks out into traffic. She has no—I mean, all this movie is about like fear of death, anxiety, attachment to material possessions. Uh, and at one point, Edward Norton even says that she— hates her because he's like a she's a mirror of him and she's a mirror of him because he wants she lives in like poverty she steals fucking clothes and sells them at a thrift shop she doesn't care about dying she walks out into trap traffic effortlessly uh and she also lies about having terminal illnesses to go to support groups like this is everything edward norton wants to be um so that is interesting but i will say about the the meditation thing is that another thing i recently noticed is that when uh, he gets the lie burn on his hand, uh, he's trying to go to his happy place, spiritual place, whatever, and Tyler Durden's like, no, like, don't go there. Confront it right now. Keep your eyes open. And then when Tyler, when uh, the narrator shoots himself at the very end, he looks to Tyler and says, you know, my eyes are open, and then shoots himself. In other words, I don't need that to to sort of exist in the world. I don't need to put my mind somewhere else. I'm here with my eyes open, confronting the situation, looking death in the face. I'm going to shoot myself in the face. Right. So that's the arc for him is that through the the burn that is only neutralized once Tyler Durden says that you need to accept that one day you're going to die. There's also the car crash. Yep. And when he says my eyes are open and he shoots himself in the fucking mouth, the message is, is that he's no longer afraid of death. Yeah. I think it's uh, he, he in an interview mentioned <laughs> he, uh, he Chuck Palahniuk in an interview mentions Heidegger and I guess for whatever reason I hadn't but it's very much like uh, you're being towards death for Heidegger people are anxious about death and want to control uh, they want to avoid their death at all costs and end up controlling the world and people disciple, not disciples of Heidegger people have written about Heidegger have pointed that towards sort of fascistic tendencies and uh, a need to dominate everything around you but yeah this movie is very like 
be okay and confront your death and be okay with that, which I think is probably one of the better messages of the movie. And I think, especially I, and, I, real and quick, if, if we could just say yeah. it too, I think we use the F word fascist so much today and there's so much confusion about what it, it means. <laughs> and people get so fucking angry. They're like, this person's not a fascist or, oh, you fucking liberals are just calling everyone a fascist and that's how you demean them. Let's, let's be really clear here for people that are listening. You can say that something is fascistic. And that doesn't necessarily mean that like every single thing that that person does is fascist. I probably at some point today will operate according to a fascistic logic. It will just happen. It's not necessarily that I am a fascist. Like that in my core identity or my being, I am therefore Mussolini. No. It's <laughs> it's that there is a tendency to need to control and to manage and to manipulate uh, – what is otherwise the truth of things, but I'm ignorant of that truth or I'm refusing that truth because it's not going the way that I want to force it to go. And so that's a very sort of like dis- distillation of a fascistic logic. And and I think we can still think of it in that terms without getting like overblown and being afraid of this word, you know. But what do you mean in, in that definition? What does the word truth mean? Well, uh, it means the the an, an accurate understanding of the state of affairs. So, okay, so I said this a minute ago, but so uh, Lacan and Zizek talk about the distinction between uh, like uh, the obsessive and the hysteric in psychoanalysis. The hysteric is the one who is actually responding to the truth of the anxiety, but the hysteric doesn't know how to necessarily truthfully respond to the true situation. So they respond in a way that might be quote-unquote crazy or hysterical. They lose right? their shit. All right. So uh, I want to talk about something that the movie does uh, that I find quite interesting, which is playing with the medium. So um, this is Durden splicing himself into the movie. There's This is the dick shot at the end. This is uh, at certain points in the movie, we actually see the sprockets of film on the left and right sides of oh. uh, kind of gyrating as, oh, that, yeah, yeah. as, uh, as Edward Norton's character says something in voiceover. And uh, I really like this because I always, whenever I'm looking at a adaptation from, from either a book to a movie or a play to a movie, I always love when they're able to communicate things that are unique to the medium. And so I think here with Tyler Durden splicing himself into the movie and especially the one frame of the dick at the end, I think it does a really interesting thing in how it subverts the veracity of the message of this movie. Because after all, this movie is a piece of consumer capitalism in as much as the things that they're critiquing. I mean, this movie, although didn't make a lot of money at the box office... It has made a lot of money since, and that is the overall goal of making this movie. And I, I want to um, read a quote from these two academics, Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter. They say, Do you hate consumer culture, angry about all the packaging, all those commercials, worry about the quality of the mental environment? Well, join the club. Anti-consumerism has become one of the most important cultural forces in millennial North American life across every social class and demographic. Sure, as a society, we may be spending record amounts of money on luxury goods, vacations, designer clothes, and household comforts, but take a look at the nonfiction bestsellers. For years, they've been populated by books that are deeply critical of consumerism. No Logo, Culture Jam, Luxury Fever, Fast Food Nation. You can now buy ad busters at your neighborhood music or clothing store. The critique of mass society has erred by identifying consumerism with conformity. 
Social critics, including academics and popular writers of all political persuasions, has have as a result failed to notice that in rebellion, not conformity, that it is in rebellion, not conformity, that for decades has been driving the force of the marketplace. So I really like how basically if we're to believe that Tyler Durden, the character, puts those images of pornos to subvert the family-friendly message of these kids' movies, then by putting the dick shot or seeing the sprockets when Tyler says we are the all-seeing, all-dancing crap of the world, it's also subverting the veracity of their anti-consumerist message because at the end of the day, they're part of that system. Yeah, although I am... I get that, and it's especially true of this movie, and even... uh, there's a bar that I walk, I've walk. i walked past a lot called Durden's, which <laughs> is a Tyler Durden-themed bar. It's also a sports bar where I th- like. it seems like the demographic there is like finance bros who go to like watch the football game. Uh, at the same time, a lot of people are like, oh, you don't like capitalism? Well, like, why do you have a phone? And it's like, well, I have to like exist in the world. Like, I can't. That's like, oh, you don't like. I'm not saying it's bad. No, no, I know. But, but like, it is an interesting question. And I, our video... Uh, I love on this question, um, uh, I don't remember the first names, but the scholars are um, Boltansky and Chiapello, who talk about how essentially anti-capitalist critique has become the like main MO of capitalism itself. That capitalism right. hurt us loud and clear, that we don't like the alienation, the dehumanization, et cetera, et cetera. So they're like, great, we can sell that to you too. Right. And I think that it's... I love the ability to do that through playing with the medium. And um, one of the movies that I actually wanted to talk about during our Patreon poll, Doubt, does some really interesting things using cinema that it couldn't explain in the theater play that it's originally based off of. All right, uh, let's move on to the mailbag slash voicemails. Ryan, also, if you guys want to give us a call, our number is 213-534-8807. Let's pick one, Ryan. Go for it. You know, I'm really disappointed with how many mail, mail voicemails we got here. We, everyone knows the first rule of show me the meaning is you don't talk about it. <laughs> the second rule is you don't talk about it either. So the fact that we have all these voicemails means people have been talking about it. Let's go to voicemail two. Hi, Jared. Um, this is Izzy. And first off, thank you so much for this podcast. I love it so much. Uh, it's great. Um, but I actually wanted to bring up something that I heard in one of the first, I think it's maybe the very first uh, episode that you guys made. It was about Mother um, by Darren Aronofsky. And I think that it was really interesting that none of you guys ever really mentioned the feminist perspective of the film, because a lot of my friends and I, who are all women, um, when we went to go see the film, we actually really, really disliked it. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was just kind of unnecessarily putting violence on a woman's body in order to make a point, which for a lot of us, we found very hurtful. Um, And so I find it really interesting that that wasn't mentioned. Um, But I just kind of wanted to see what your perspective on that was, taking it into kind of a feminist perspective. I know this is bringing the podcast back up by a lot, (laughs) um, but I'd really like to know what your thoughts were. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. Well, Izzy, thank you for calling. I hate Mother. So, uh, yeah, I mean... In general, I tend, I just, you know, like if there's violence in a movie, whatever, you know, I love John Wick. I love movies that have violence in The Raid, some of the best movies. But yeah, I I mean, I didn't find really anything that happened in Mother to be very interestingly motivated, never mind the crazy shit that happens to Jennifer Lawrence in that movie. 
Did you end up seeing it, Alec? I never saw it based on your stellar recommendation. Yeah. I mean, it's not good. I, I, so this is this is actually a really common feminist critique of Mother. So thanks, Izzy, for bringing this up. Um, didn't get into it just because didn't have time, to be honest. And, and for people out there, realize we have like 58 minutes to an hour. There's so many other things. So don't get mad at us because you're like, how could you fucking leave this out? Fuck, man. There's just so much to talk about with films. Right? Talk about, we talked no, no, about capitalism not. for no, half of this great. podcast. That's what the movie's about. <laughs> Izzy, Izzy, Izzy you, you were fantastic. Great question. But no, no, but a lot of people do get in the comments. They're like, I can't believe you didn't mention this, you fucking idiots. And it's like, I know, but you know, limited time, guys. Um, but no, we just didn't have time in this. But this is a common criticism. The reason, though, that... Um, that uh, that that my mind probably because I'm a dude didn't immediately go there, but is because I also think this film is a metaphor uh, so much for about kind of like the inherent problems of the 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 patriarchal dominance of monotheistic religions, and 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 so I think that that was Darren Aronofsky's first intention, but maybe maybe the reason that it is inherently problematic in the fa- in, in the fact that the way that he does that is by showing a, a female's body getting beaten up so brutally um, is because he's a dude. So I think it'd be really interesting if you had a woman who had the same sort of Jewish connection that wanted to make a similar sort of like retelling of the religious myth as Aronofsky tried to do. If you had a woman tell the story that was sensitive to those types of themes i wonder how it would come out and if it would be done differently and then again i wonder how you would do it um it, while still trying to make the same point if you could or not I, I don't know like maybe send an email or send a follow-up voicemail and let us know if it would be possible but it might just be because it's a blind spot uh, as a dude filmmaker and then uh, as like dudes watching the film it's very possible all right what we got next all right let's go to voicemail five hey wise crack guy Rob Mayfield here, a.k.a. the Intellectual Madman. So right. I was listening to uh, your Wisecrack movie podcast, and then when you guys just finished up on John Wick Chapter 2, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, Common's character uh, being killed. And I'm under the impression that I believe that he's not dead, and there's a potential he could come back in chapter three and the reason why i say that is because there's a line mentioned uh earlier uh, in the film uh professional courtesy and we see this professional courtesy and action during that train sequence that uh, uh that you guys were talking about and in the sequence uh, Keanu, uh john Witt essentially takes that knife and he uh stabs common in the chest with it but she said if he were to remove the blade, the blood would flow, and he'd pretty much uh, die almost instantly. And so he just left it there, and he said, consider it a professional courtesy. And you see Thomas' character, he sits back, and, you know, he sits down because he's been stabbed, obviously, and he smiles just a little bit. And then, of course, the train goes away or whatever, so you assume he's dead. Now, the reason why this is important, because that same move comes back later, when uh, John Wick is going up against Ruby Rose. And he stabs her with the blade in the chest. However, he does not offer her the same uh, common courtesy. He removes the blade, and you pretty much just see her die right then and there. 
All right, you know that's really interesting. Like I, uh, I think he has. I think he's onto something there. John well, Wick Three is going to have Common come back, and he's going to like either have like a knife, just the st- same knife, just sewn into his body still. <laughs> he, he hasn't taken it out. He just lives with it, or he like figured it out some way because of the professional courtesy. I think, dude, you're fucking on to something there, man. Mr. Yeah, Mad but man, I think whatever. that the line is, it's that him and Common are having a drink at the Continental, and he says that, hey. If we're gonna, if I'm gonna kill you, we're gonna make it quick and painless. I think that's the professional courtesy. He's like, "Hey, it's stuck in your heart. You can take it out and end things on your own terms." But why and, would he and, tell him that about the, the the knife? Wouldn't he want him to take it out and then just kill him right there? Yeah, dude, I don't he's know. onto something. He did it. He figured it out. <laughs> Good job. Good soundboard use. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's one more. Do an, let's do one more. All right. Let's go to let's go to voicemail one. Hey, y'all, I'm just calling in uh, about the Sorry to Bother You podcast. Specifically, um, about the show, the in-movie show titled uh, I Got the Shit Kicked Out of Me. I thought um, the show deserves slightly more credit than was given on the show. Uh, I know Greg said he immediately thought of the the ball-kicking show that was in Idiocracy. Uh, I immediately, too, also, um, you know, thought of that show but i thought that this movie actually went a little further with it because it shows how kind of television is also being used for social movements but how those social movements at the end of the day still can only be used if they also feature the humiliation and uh, abuse that exists in the dumb television sphere you know reality tv is based upon humiliation and exploitation of the people within it um so if we use that platform for revolution we still need to humiliate and exploit or exploit ourselves and even in today day-to-day um type of work environments as shown in the movie it requires humiliation and exploitation so i think the show does a really good job at kind of showing how no matter what we do we're in to the system of exploitation, humiliation, and to get out of this system, it is also going to involve, or any attempts we make to get out of this system will also involve um, having to utilize humiliation, exploitation, taking it on, and fighting through it. So, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks, man. Thanks. I think it's interesting, but I think the point is, is that even through that humiliation, he eventually gets to read his message, but the message has no effect. Well, I I think, yes, you're right. But I think to his point, what I got out of that was that TV kind of dictates the terms in which we can, like, have any kind of message. Like, you have to, you know, degrade yourself even to get that far. Uh, It just randomly reminded me of the Gil Scott Heron quote, like, the revolution will not be televised. But it's because of this reason that, like there's a filter that TV has, and anything outside that filter does not get heard or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point. I dig it. Where can I find you on the internet, Alec? Oh man, I almost forgot. You can find me at Wisecrack Alec on Twitter. That's it. Oh, Ryan. Uh, you can find me on uh, Ryan's Shorts and Ryan's Game Show. I got some. I got some parody songs coming out this week. Ooh. I'm gonna, you know, Weird Al's gonna die at some point, and someone's got to take. A, you can't have a whole genre of music die with him. Okay, you got to be the next. Someone's got to take over the mantle. 
So check out Ryan Short in the next week. And the that. presidential art ones is just so good. Oh, I, don't you like know if that? Yeah, I love that one. All right, check that one out too. All right, Austin, what about you? Uh, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I do a philosophy podcast as well called Owls at Dawn, and I am in the throngs of finishing my book. Otherwise, I would plug my other podcast, but we're going on a hiatus, the I Dig This Movie one. Send help, guys. Send booze and chocolate to Sydney, Australia. I won't give you my address in case you're fucking psycho and you want to kill me because you think I'm a Marxist commie snowflake. <laughs> well, well, you are, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, signing off for now. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Later, fuckers. Goodbye. I am Jack's raging bile duct.